Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. You will find it on page 961 of the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, the resurrection of Christ. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is God's word. Good to see you all together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the chance to raise our voices and to answer back to you for the great work you've done in rescuing us. Lord, as we open your word and look at it this morning, uh, we pray that you would meet us, that you would Give us eyes to see you more clearly and ears to hear your voice speaking by your spirit, Lord. And as always, Lord, we pray, we plead that in hearing you, you would change our hearts to look more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've mentioned this morning, we start a new series uh, together, and instead of working through one particular book of the Bible like we normally do, we're going to be looking at lots of different scriptures asking one big question throughout the series. What difference should the gospel, the good news of Jesus, make in everyday life? What difference should the gospel make in everyday life? Now, with the start of a new year, uh, a lot of people are thinking about changes that they want to make to their lives in 2015. If you look at some of the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions according to a couple of polls, it's interesting to to see some patterns arise. I'm going to lose weight or get organized, 
exercise, eat healthier, manage stress better, quit smoking, enjoy life more fully, spend more time with family. And you, you hear those lists, and there's this collective sense that life is out of balance. That's what our resolutions are telling us, that our lives are out of balance. And 2015 is the year we're going to take our life back, right? But the fact that less than 8% of people actually keep their resolutions uh, suggests that we really don't know what to do to make any lasting changes. When I was a sophomore in college, a friend of mine gave me my first guitar. There's kind of an unwritten rule that you're supposed to learn how to play guitar when you're in college. Uh, And so I had this old thing, and it was so old, and the strings were so hard that it was like learning how to play on razor wire. It was just, and I didn't know you could change the strings. I didn't know anything. But, and, and the thing would never hold a tune either. So you would start tuning it, you know, with the, the low E on top, and you work your way down. But by the time you are kind of putting enough pressure on the high E to get that string in tune, you've undone everything else you just did on the other strings. And the thing is so tight, it feels like it's about to snap. That is what a lot of our lives feel like. You know, you work hard to get your family time in order, but now I'm behind at work. And so then I put some extra time to get in there, and it means I have to skip out on these church commitments or or something. You know, you, 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 you put enough pressure to get one area of life in tune, and you've thrown everything else out of tune. Start burning the candle at both ends, or selectively opening emails because I don't have the capacity to think about what that person wants to talk about right now. You can't tell me I'm the only one who does that. So if I haven't replied in a while, (laughs) it's been a long break with sickness at home. You know, we might even achieve a moment of peace in all of this, but we know it doesn't last. You know, it's, it's as fragile as a single urgent phone call. You know, mom, I got into an accident, or son, your dad's in the hospital, you know. doesn't take much to completely throw off whatever equilibrium we think we might achieve. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes, often we go about trying to tune ourselves to the sound of everything else in our lives. We often hear this described as getting balance. But balanced to what? Tuned to what? It's an important question. It's a critical question. Because without answering that question, tuned to what? Without identifying and holding fast to some sort of source and standard that's actually able to make sense of life, one that centers us and anchors us, gives us direction and significance and lasting value in a chaotic world, something that helps us know how to respond to the various twists and turns in our lives. One main thing that's so big, it's able to hold the weight of everything else in life, even while offering hope that somehow this all will work out. 
without tuning our lives to that one main thing, whatever it is, the best thing, we are going to forever be in this tug of war, both internally in our souls and externally as we, you know, deal with our surroundings and the long list of responsibilities and relationships that we're trying to hold together. So what one thing can actually center us in that way? Bring clarity and strength and hope to everything in life. Does such a thing even exist? It kind of sounds too good to be true. And there are a lot of things that are vying for that position in your life. A lot of things that would like to be for you the main thing. Money, family, success, career, education, pleasure, recreation. The list goes on. But none of these things are strong enough to bear the full weight of life. If you take all of your responsibilities and relationships and dreams and aspirations and you load them into a backpack and hang them on any one of those hooks, it's going to tear clean out of the wall. They're not able to make sense of it all. And some of us learn that the hard way by trying. We thought that if if I can just get work right, then everything else in life is going to work out. But the damage done to our marriage and our kids is hard to repair after years of thinking that way. Some of us thought, well, if I can get my kids right, if I can keep them from doing the things I did, if I can just help them turn out and get my kids right, then life will be well. And what we're doing is we're taking the backpack off the hook and we're putting it on them only to watch them buckle under the weight. There's only one thing that's strong enough to bring order, direction, security, significance to life, both to to our personal lives and even to our life together as a congregation. Only one thing of first importance, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom And deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is what the Apostle Paul handed down to churches as of first importance, as he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15.3. It was the main thing that he wanted his churches to get and hold on to. That was first importance, the gospel. And the gospel's able to be the main thing because it's through the gospel that we have relationship with God. Keller continues, the gospel does not begin by tuning us in relation to our particular problems and surroundings. It first retunes us to God. And that's what makes it of first importance the main thing. It's, it's the message through which God is revealing to us who he is and what he has done to redeem our lives for his kingdom and glory. 
And it's a message that applies not just to how we come to know God, how we become a Christian or enter into relationship with God. It's a message that deals with the entire scope of life. To quote Keller again, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of the church. And so our goal in the year ahead is to explore together how this message, how the good news of Jesus actually changes everything in every area of life. We're going to look at different segments together. We'll talk about the gospel in me. So how it affects my personal life, my identity, my heart. Then we'll talk about the gospel in the church. How it shapes and guides our relationships and our ministries and our structure even as a congregation. We'll talk about the gospel at home. How it impacts our marriages and our families. How we raise our kids, how we treat our parents, how we live as singles. The gospel at school is after that. So how it, how it shapes my aspirations, my education, what I, what I focus on and give myself to at school. And then we'll spend time looking at the gospel at work. What difference it makes for my work ethic or for my relationships on the job or for how I should think about career or success. Those kinds of things. Then we'll talk about the gospel in the public square. So how the good news of Jesus weighs in on different culturally significant topics today. How we might think about things like entertainment or abortion or racism or homosexuality. And then finally we'll look at the gospel to the ends of the earth. The fact that we're called not just to believe and to apply the good news, but to share it with the world. So that's where we're going in the year ahead. And I am really excited to look at this together. I'm really excited to take a look and see what difference does Jesus make in every corner of my world and yours. And not just to explore it, but to begin applying it together. To bring that message of Christ to bear in a transforming way on my life. But in order to apply the gospel consistently and faithfully, we need to have a clear understanding of what it is. What is the essential message of the Christian faith that we are believing and shaping our lives around? And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of this morning and the next couple of weeks. What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus? We'll talk about it more generally this morning, but then next week we'll look at the God-centered gospel, how, how God is at the center of it, not us. And the week after that, we'll talk about the gospel of grace, how it is by grace from beginning to end. But this morning, more generally, what is the gospel? When we speak about the importance of it or the centrality of it, what is it that we're actually talking about? By that word. 
And the word itself, gospel, is simple enough. It, it means good news. And most of us could probably have figured that out. In the Old Testament, that might refer to you know, a, a, an announcement made to a king, a proclamation of good news, or often in the Old Testament and always in the New Testament, it's a, it's a message specifically about God and his kingdom. So it's not just general good news, but good news about God, the, a royal announcement about the king of the universe. That's what the word is pointing us to. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to start with a definition for us, and then I want to offer four key words that help us kind of summarize and remember the significance of the gospel. So first, the definition. And you have it on the screen behind me if you want to write it down. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. It's the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom, and think of what we talked about throughout the book of Matthew, and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. So that's the definition, and we'll walk through that together this morning. But here are the four key words that are going to help us organize our thoughts about that. News, kingdom, cross, and grace. Those four words, news, kingdom, cross, and grace. We'll start with news. The gospel is first and foremost news. Look again at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, notice what Paul is doing with the gospel. He's preaching it. He's proclaiming it. And notice what the Corinthians did with it. They received it. They believed it. They took their stand on it. So, the gospel is, in essence, a message. It's a report. It's news. Now, it's news that changes absolutely everything. It's the news through which they're being saved. That's a big deal. But it's news. It's a report. It's an announcement. It is not advice. The gospel is not advice. And that might sound like something silly to specify, but it's critically important because everything in us wants to turn the gospel into something we do. That is our default mode. A certain way to live or a certain moral code to keep. To make it a matter of performance for God. I obey God, therefore he'll accept me. That's what we want to do with the gospel. Whether that performance takes a, the form of kind of a personal piety, you know, be good enough. Or, or whether that performance takes more of a, a public activism. 
you know, I'm going to join God in the, in the work he's doing to, to bring uh, wholeness to a broken world. We, we are tempted to make the gospel into something that we do for God. Now, of course, we're called to do things for God, right? I mean, Jesus calls us, tells us to follow him and to obey him. But following Christ is not the gospel. It is a fruit of the gospel. It's a response to the gospel. But it is not the gospel itself. The gospel is not something we do. It's news of what God has done. And if we don't keep that distinction up front, we're going to miss everything else. So the gospel is first and foremost news, not something we do for God to save ourselves, but something God has done for us to save us. So what has he done? What is the news about? Well, that brings us to our next key word, and that's kingdom. So the gospel is the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom. It's the second word. And by kingdom, we're talking about God exercising his rightful reign and rule over this earth. So we're not talking about, you know, castles and fairy tales and knights and fair maidens, that kind of Disney kingdom type stuff. Uh, We're talking about God's kingship, the fact that he rules, he reigns, and his establishment of his kingship over all creation. And this idea of God's kingdom is one of the themes that pulls the whole Bible story together. It helps us make sense of, of the whole. It's ultimately what God is after through the gospel. He is establishing his kingdom and glory. And we can see that theme as early as the very first verse of Scripture. Clear back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a very short, simple statement. But if you think about all that we can learn about God from that very first verse, it's pretty incredible. So first, it means that God was there in the beginning before anything else. In the beginning, God. So he's eternal. He's self-existent. He's self-sustaining. Everything depends on God. For its existence. God depends on no one for his. In the beginning, God. Second, that God is the creator of everything that there is. He created the heavens and the earth. And it's kind of a, a poetic way of saying everything. It's two extremes and everything in between there. Heaven and earth. And by implication, God is the owner of everything. If he made it all then he has the rights as owner over it all, too. And if he owns it, then he's the rightful ruler of it. He's the sovereign king over everything that is. He's the proper king. And therefore, as king, he has the authority to decide how life should be lived in his creation. He's also the judge. And since he alone is creator, king, and judge, he alone is worthy of our undivided allegiance and affection and worship. 
Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is creator, he's king, he's judge, and creation is the realm of his kingdom. That's Genesis 1.1. Now, of course, you have to keep reading in order to see all of that in Genesis 1.1, but the seed for all of that is right there in that verse. This world belongs to God, and it was made for his glory. We, too, as part of that creation, were made for his glory and his kingdom. Later in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, talks about how God made people, humans, in his image. He made us to have relationship with him, like a father to a child, or excuse me, like a child to a father. He made us to reflect his glory and character and to represent his kingdom, his rule on this earth. That's what we were made for according to the blueprint in Genesis 1, the design of creation. And, and that's where the story of scripture begins. It begins with this picture of life as it was meant to be. The glory of God, the joy of his people, the nearness of his presence, the fullness of his blessing, and the kindness of his rule. That's life as it was meant to be. But it doesn't, of course, take long for that story to begin to unravel, does it? You know, you, you can't even get past, like, the next two chapters before the wheels come off and the major problem of the story is introduced human rebellion against this God. That is, in essence, what the serpent was tempting Adam and Eve to do, to commit treason against their, their God and their father, to doubt his goodness as king and take his rule into their own hands, to become their own king, to decide for themselves what is good and evil, to become their own judge. And so they did. They committed high treason against heaven and brought upon themselves and upon the world around them ruin and death. They exchanged God's blessing for a curse. And the ultimate curse being eternal death and separation from God. That first act of rebellion and everyone that follows its shape is what the Bible calls sin. It's rebellion against God. And it's something that every human being ever since has run into. We have the exact same problem. In some corner of our hearts, whether or not we're willing to admit it publicly, we think we would do a better job running this world than God. We don't like some of the decisions he makes about what's right and what's wrong. We don't like some of the ways that he chooses for life to happen to us. We think we would do better, and so we choose in, in various ways to live life as though we were king, as though we were in charge, as though we were the judge. And we're quick to condemn anybody who gets in the way of our glory and our kingdom. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, it's talking about Adam, and death through sin... 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're all in it together. We've all made the same mistakes. And, and so God's vision for his creation and his kingdom has been compromised. We rebelled against his rule. We forfeited his blessing. We profaned his glory. And consequently, we're under threat of being banished from his presence forever. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hell. It's the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Now, if you step back, that doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like very bad news, and it is, unless God does something about it. Unless God himself acts to reclaim his kingdom and restore his creation and redeem for himself a people that he will reconcile to himself in relationship. In establishing his kingdom, God must also deal with our sin. If this is going to turn out as good news for us. God must deal with our sin. And that's exactly what he promises to do throughout the Bible. In fact, most of the Bible's story is unpacking that promise that God is going to deal with our sin in bringing his kingdom to bear. The Old Testament uh, builds this promise throughout the entirety of its story as you follow uh, God and his covenant with his people Israel and how he uh, interacts with them and rules over them and how they worship him in the temple and through the priests and the prophets and the kings and so on. And as that story builds, so the promise that God is going to do something to deal with sin builds until you finally get to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew that we just finished studying, and you see that all along, where has this been going? Where has this been pointing? It's been pointing to Christ. The Old Testament is the promise. The New Testament tells us how it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ, which brings us to our third key word, and that is cross. So news, kingdom, cross. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. So the cross is the centerpiece of the gospel message. Now, when we say that, we're not saying cross, you know, at the exclusion of the resurrection or something like that. We're using cross as kind of a, uh, a catch-all phrase to refer to all of the saving work of Christ, much the same way that Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 2.2, when he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean Paul never talked about the resurrection or other things that Jesus did. It's kind of the, the centerpiece the, that pulls it all together. And when you look at chapter 15 and you look at what Paul actually says about what the gospel message is, you see that the cross and the resurrection are, in fact, the heart of that message, the main 
thing at the center of that news. So look again at, at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he then appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and so on. So there are two central facts that Paul is trying to establish at the heart of this good news. The first is that Christ died for sins. Now, he anchors that claim in the Bible. He died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament promised us this would happen. And then he anchors or establishes that claim in history. And he was buried. Why mention his burial? It's evidence that he really did die. He was buried. He was in the ground. So that's the first thing he wants to establish, that Christ died for sins. The second fact is that Christ rose from the dead, which again he anchors in the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures, and establishes in history. Then he appeared to Cephas and the twelve and to five hundred at once and so on. He really did rise from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the heart of the gospel, of the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin. You cannot preach the gospel without talking about the cross. You do not believe the gospel unless you trust in what Christ has done for you on the cross. But why the cross? What is it that God actually accomplished through what is in reality an ancient Roman form of torture and shame? What is it that God did? How does the cross deal with sin and establish God's kingdom? We can summarize this with another word, a bonus word for you. Substitute. Substitute. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus became our substitute. He stood in our place before the Father as our representative. And so everything that we humans were made to be and to do but failed at because of sin, Jesus is and does perfectly in our place in order to redeem us for God's glory and kingdom. He's our substitute. Notice how later in chapter 15, Paul identifies Christ as a new Adam, a new head of humanity, our new representative. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, it says, For as by a man came death, that was Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. He's a new Adam, a new start. And again in verses 47 and 49, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you hear echoes of Genesis 1 in Paul's description there? Through Jesus, God is making right everything that went wrong in the beginning because of our sin. He's reclaiming us for what we were made to be and to do. And he will be faithful to complete it when he returns. Speaking of our future resurrection at his coming, verse 24 says, Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. God is going to establish his kingdom through Jesus. So Jesus is our substitute. He's our representative. Because he lived a perfect life before his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and never sinned, he can offer his life in our place. And it's acceptable to God because it's perfect. Because he died for our sins on the cross to pay the penalty that we owed, God is able to cancel the debt of our sin and extend forgiveness and love in its place. That's good news. That's, that's great news. That's incredible news. No matter how badly you have messed up in life, no matter how much shame or guilt you carry, stuff that nobody else knows about, no matter how foolish you've been or how weak you feel, know that if Jesus is your Savior, whatever punishment you deserve for your sin has been spent fully on him in your place. There's no wrath left for the one who's united with Christ. It's finished. It's finished. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, your weakness, your shame. He doesn't measure you by how well you're able to hold it all together and you know, keep up this elusive sense of balance that we're all chasing aimlessly at. It's not how he measures you. When he looks at you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his Son. And he loves you. He loves you. Moreover, he promises that there will come a day when everything wrong in this world will be undone. Everything sad will come untrue. And we will be free to enjoy the presence of our creator and king forever. That's good news. Very good news. And so what do we do with that news? How do I know whether I get to benefit from that news? How do I participate in it? That brings us to our fourth key word, and that's grace. Grace. So news, kingdom, cross, and now grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, 
not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we look at those verses and we see three things about how we take hold of the gospel in our lives. By grace, through faith, for works. So first, we're saved or we're rescued. We benefit from this good news by grace. By grace. And again, that's, that's the key word there. So, so what is grace? What are we talking about? We often hear grace defined as unmerited favor. So you receive something you don't actually deserve, something you didn't earn. And that's true, but it only goes about halfway with the biblical portrait of grace. Because it's not merely that we haven't done anything to deserve God's favor, as if we're neutral. We've actually done something to deserve his judgment and his anger. So we're we're not neutral, we're guilty. And so grace is more than unmerited favor. It's being given something indescribably wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. As Jerry Bridges puts it, it's God's unmerited favor toward those who deserve only his wrath. That's grace. And we see that in how Paul uses the word right here in our passage. As he's describing you know, the evidence of Christ's resurrection. And he's listing all of the different appearances that Christ made after he rose from the dead. He's almost sheepish about including himself in that list when he's referring to his vision on the road to Damascus. And, and that's not because he didn't really meet the resurrected Lord. It's because he, know he, didn't, he knows that he didn't deserve to. 1 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's only by the grace of God that we are what we are when it comes to benefiting from the good news of the gospel. That's because, once again, the gospel is not something that we do, but news of what God has done. It's a gift. It's to be received as a gift which God applies to our lives by his spirit. So it's by grace. It's a gift. You can't claim before God any credit. He gets all the glory. He did all the work. But it does require a response. It's offered freely to us, but we must take hold of it in order to benefit from it. And we do that through faith. That's the second part. By grace, through faith. Faith is trust. It's dependence. It's more than simply agreeing with a fact. You can agree with lots of facts. It doesn't mean you're depending upon that thing that you're agreeing about. 
It's putting the full weight of your hope in something, relying on it, depending on it. So if you think of sin as crippling us in our walk with God, such that we're not just hobbling along, we're lying on the ground in our own mess, and the goal of our life is clear over there, faith is not just agreeing that Jesus could pick me up and carry me over there. It's letting him do it. It's turning to him and asking him to do it and depending on him to do it and turning away from any other would-be saviors, anything else I might hope in, such that if Jesus doesn't get me from here to there, if he fails, my life is a wash because I'm all in with him and I got no plan B. That's faith. That's faith in Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith, through really trusting in him and not in ourselves and not in anyone else. But we're not just saved from something, from sin, from God's wrath. We're also saved for something, for God's kingdom and glory. We are saved to become part of what God envisioned for life in the first place to be his children, to reflect his glory, to represent his kingdom. Or, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.10, we were saved for good works, for a life of obedience that brings honor to God, our king. And this is where it's critical to remember that, once again, the gospel is not only how we come to have a relationship with Christ, it's also how we grow and walk in that relationship every day. To return to a, a quote from Tim Keller from earlier, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more deeply as life goes on. We never, ever outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. We need it every day. The same gospel that rescues us from the penalty of sin also refashions us to walk more closely with God in our personal lives, even as it readies us for the mission that he's given us to make disciples of Christ. This is the one main thing able to bear the full weight of everything we call life. And it does truly change everything. That's why we're going to spend a year exploring that together. What difference does it make here? What about here? What about here? We need the gospel. The good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to close this morning by inviting you to celebrate the truth of this gospel together through the Lord's table.